Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us. I think you'll greatly enjoy Dale's guest this month. It's Russell Gordy of Houston. If you're a fan of shotguns and you appreciate the craftsmanship of shotguns, this is the guest for you. Let's go to Dr. Dale now. Thank you, Gary, for those kind comments. Uh, here we are in the middle of March on the heels of uh, the 2021-22 quail season, and it was a tale of rags to riches. Uh, if you were in uh, West Texas, it was rags. If you were south of Highway 90 and down in the Ebernville country, it was riches. And so we're a little bit envious of that here in West Texas, but uh, hope springs eternal with both quail hunters and cotton farmers, and so better, hopefully we'll be better this fall. I want to ask for a show of hands. Y'all hold your hands up high now, listeners. How many of you ever hunted quail with a bolt-action shotgun? A bolt-action shotgun. Now, chances are that's uh, putting some age on you. You're you're probably 60-plus. And if you're like me, uh, you look forward every year to getting a, a catalog, the Sears and Roebuck catalog, what we call the wish book back in those days. And it actually had a couple of pages worth of shotguns and 30-30 rifles and 22s. So maybe you shot a J.C. Higgins, a Springfield, a Revelation, or in my case, a Mossberg 16-gauge. But uh, to try to date you with some of those, because our guest today, I think, has uh, some recollection of the Sears and Roebuck catalog, uh, but his taste had become quite refined over the years. Our guest today is Russell Gordy. From Houston, Texas. Uh, welcome, Russell. We lo- we're looking forward to uh, hearing your story today. And I would ask that you start off with maybe a, a, a short biographical sketch of background about where you came from and what, where you got to where you're at today. Okay, Dale. Thank you. I uh, I grew up here in Houston. Uh, my dad was a Houston policeman, and my mother cleaned buildings for a living. And uh, the only thing that kept me from being a juvenile delinquent was that my grandparents had a small farm over in uh, northeast Louisiana around Leesville, and I spent every summer there working on the farm and uh, uh, learning things from them. That's where I got my love of land. That's also where I learned to quail hunt. Uh, my grandfather was a big quail hunter, and uh, it was more for food than sport in those days, and uh, had a big English setter, and we went out quite quite often and uh, shot quail. And... Uh, when I say we, he shot quail and I watched. And so uh, uh, you talked about the Sears and Roebuck catalog. I, uh, my cousin had a 22 and, and uh, he would, I'd follow him around hoping to shoot it. And uh, he was always out of bullets until I left and then he started shooting it again. And I would go in and people don't know this today, but the Sears and Roebuck catalog was the internet of my youth. You, it was usually five or 600 pages. You could even, you could even buy a house in it, but it had about 10 or 12 pages of guns. And I would sit there and flip out over them and look at them every day. And my grandmother, who was a wonderful woman would say, son, you need to quit torturing yourself. You're probably never going to ever be able to get one of those. And I said, maybe not, but grandma, if I can, I'm going to have every one of them. And, uh, so time went on. I, I, 
graduated from high school, went to college, but I started working in the oil field when I was about 15 and, and, uh, uh, started a career in, in, uh, in, in oil and gas. And, uh, I've been very lucky and fortunate and, and done well. And, uh, but never, uh, stopped my passion for hunting and fishing. And, uh, and so I've, I've been doing that ever since. And as Dale says, I, I kind of eclipse of Sears Roebuck catalog. I opened Gordian Sons, uh, four years ago and it's uh although people think of it as a super high end because it does have super high end guns it also has regular guns and regular clothing and everything else but uh but there are a collection of some shotguns in there that cost anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand bucks. So you you can and they all shoot the same as the J C Higgins model that did, but uh, they are pretty cool looking and they're all handmade. Okay, so we're it, gonna get more into the Gordian signs and the marketing and, and the products there a little bit later in the podcast. Uh first of all, Russell, I wanna thank you for your philanthropy and uh, number one for your sponsorship of the Doctor Dale on Quail podcast series. We're now starting our third year and Gordian Sons has been our sponsor throughout and we appreciate that. And then also your participation and uh, contributions through the Park City's Quail, which uh, I know you've uh, been a pretty good donor for for them. And, and indirectly, we get some of that money at the Rolling Plants Quail Research Foundation. And then uh, maybe you don't know, but we're building a, a new complex out there that's going to have a uh, an office, um, going to have a classroom, it'll seat 100 people, a research facility. And the Gordy Family Lodge, which will house 12 people, because we're going to be starting a new venture here in the next year where we're training veterans, uh, equipping them with the skills and abilities to manage sporting ranches. And so we're looking forward to that. So thank you on all those fronts. And uh, I want to talk to you, uh, obviously, about bird hunting today and uh, your your involvement, your passion for quail. And you, again, you've already uh, told us who your mentor was uh, your grandfather, and I did a little reading up on uh, an article that you had in the Land Report a couple of years ago, and I take it your grandfather was a, a trick sh- was a trick shooter. Is that correct? Yes, my my grandfather, and this is you know a long time ago and not, nothing like today, but uh, <clears throat> Winchester would find somebody in an area who could shoot better than everybody else. And they would give them a Winchester Model 12 20 gauge cylinder bore gun. And if you know Model 12s, most of them are all full chokes. And they would ask them to go around to the local, uh, you know, far, I mean, uh, fairs and stuff and put on a shooting exhibition. And what he got for that was the gun and unlimited supply of ammunition, which, which was a lot in those days, even though it was cheap. And so he would go to the fairs and he, he could throw up seven potatoes and bust them all before they hit the ground with that Model 12. Uh, a lot of people don't realize a Model 12, if you hold the trigger down and pump it, it fires. You don't have to keep uh, pulling the trigger. And so he was quite a shot and uh, quite a guy and uh, taught me pretty much everything I know about the outdoors. Well, and I take it that uh, the lessons you've learned, you're now uh, helping enrich. Your, and you've spoken to me before about one of your grandsons at least, and his ability to shoot a 14 shotgun. So tell us about his uh, abilities. Yeah, I uh, I had an accident when I was about 20. I fell off a rig and crushed my right hand, and so I can't turn it all the way over. So it, it uh, soon became evident I couldn't shoot a big shotgun because it hurt. 
So I, I, I switched to uh, side-by-side English uh, 410s, uh, probably about 23 or 24, and uh, and uh, mainly because somebody gave me one. And uh, and uh, I love those guns. I had two of them and, uh, that I, I've had up until about uh, two years ago that I've probably shot 10,000 quail with the two guns. And uh, one of them, when my, my grand, oldest grandson, his name is Rio, and when he, he turned 10, he'd been quail hunting with me since he was seven. I gave him one of them, and I put a, uh, had an iron engraver, put a little deal on the stock that it was from, from me to him. And uh, he's quite a shot. He's killed his first quail. We were walking to a mott when he was seven, and, and uh, his dad was on the other side where the dogs were pointing, and we were walking down there, and he turns to me, calls me Bops, and he said, Bops, could you think I could try that shot? And he had never shot at anything moving before. He shot at cans and water bottles and stuff. I said, well, I don't see why not. He said, what do I do? I said, well, it's going to flush uh, uh, left to right, just get behind it, catch up with it, catch, uh, pull pull the trigger and keep keep swinging the gun. And and uh, he did exactly that and killed his first quail. And uh, my wife and his mother were watching, and his dad thought I'd shot it. And I said, no. <laughs> First time he ever shot it, when he killed it, so he might ought to quit. <laughs> he's he's shot a lot of quail since then, and we have a place in Montana where we hunt Hungarian partridge and uh, sharp-tailed grouse and pheasants, and he's shot a lot of those too. He's a, he's quite a shot. My my younger grandson turned when he turned ten. I gave him the other gun, and he's been a little behind Rio. His name's Bryant, but he has uh, started to shoot uh, quail and doves with that, and, and doing quite well at it. Well, are you looking for any more grandsons? Well, I got a granddaughter that wants to know where her gun is, and I don't have another one, so I'm guessing I'll have to buy her one. <laughs> I hope that Rio's waypoint on that birdie shot is is as indelible as mine was when I dropped my first one on the wing, and when I was 13 years old with a 410, although it was a revelation, 410. Uh, Gordy, I know you own a, a fair amount of property, even by Texas standards. Uh, you you've got a ranch out there in uh, Zabala County, south of Uvalde. Uh, La Sinisa, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it in a, in a minute. And I know you've got a pretty big property up in uh, Montana, uh, I believe about 48,000 acres on the Yellowstone River, which sounds like heaven. Where else do you own property at? Well, I, I, I own quite a few ranches. That was another another one of my passions was land. And, uh and that's a, a, again because of my grandparents. Uh, uh, I love the farm. It was the best years of my childhood, and so I've always loved land. And to be honest, the first track of land I bought was 113 acres, and right out of Onalaska, Texas, which is uh, right by Lake Livingston, right out of Livingston, Texas. And uh, I uh, increased that over the years to a, a, a section of 640 buying out all of my neighbors. And then, uh, uh, then when the timber company sold, I bought their, their land around me. So that, that's about, uh, not quite 10,000 acres now. And then, uh, the, the first big ranch I bought was in Wyoming. I bought, uh, in 1992, I bought the old B.B. Brooks Ranch, which was a, the, one of the first ranches ever started in Wyoming and uh, has a, still has the best water rights in the state. 
and it's south of Casper, and it goes through the North Platte River and into the Laramie Mountains and the uh, the Deer Creek Range. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it's got good bird hunting too, great elk hunting. And uh, my kids kind of grew up there. That's, that was the biggest place we had, and uh, they kind of grew up there working on that on that ranch. Uh, they're both excellent horsemen, and both can run any kind of machinery. And uh, and uh, so we've we've had a lot of fun with that. My wife once asked me, said, uh, "When are you going to stop buying property?" And I said, "Well, you know that." Cattle drive they made in from Lonesome, in Lonesome Dove from Lonesome Dove to Montana. I said uh, I uh, I want to re- redo that. I, I just don't want to leave my ranch. And of course, she, being my wife of 48 years, she just looked at me and said, "Why did I ask?" And uh, and of course that was a joke. But you know I I do like land and uh, I try to buy special places that uh, that have well, Wyoming and Montana both have mountains. Uh, and, and and rivers. Uh, South Texas is on the Nueces River. Uh, East Texas is on a on a uh, on a couple of big creeks. Uh, so I, I try to buy special places. It's hard to replicate. I worked uh, a couple of uh, Ted Turner's ranches with some research projects fifteen twenty years ago, and his foreman at the time, Tom Waddell at the Armendaris Ranch. Uh, shout out to Tom if he's listening. Uh, Tom told me that Mr. Turner at the time had 17 ranches, but that he would not buy a property if it didn't have bird hunting potential. So where does bird hunting potential rank on Russell Gordy's list of qualifications for a property? Oh, it's, it's very high. Yeah, but besides the, the area and the, and the, the beauty, uh, as far as hunting potential, bird hunting's number one. Uh, Although I've, I've looked at places around Hebronville, because that's kind of the bird hunting capital of Texas, really. The place I bought is is west of that, and it's not known for its birds. But uh, I uh, I uh, it had good birds when it rained, and so what I've done there is uh, increase the quail habitat tremendously by root plowing and planting native grasses. And uh, uh, our best year was 2016 or 17. I get confused on what when that great year was but we got up 62 cubbies opening day and 45 on the last day of the season so although it's not Hebronville it's uh, it's not bad this year has been uh, about 15 cubbies a hunt we hunt morning and afternoon we get up about 30 cubbies uh, we usually just hunt one or the other but uh, but it's uh, I love to hunt uh, Montana is full of Hungarian partridge sharp-tailed grouse so is uh, Wyoming and uh, I always have dogs, and, and uh, in South Texas, we have a kennel of 40 dogs. Uh, I built a, a kennel in, in Montana because I spend more time there than I do in Wyoming and uh, forgot to tell my wife about it. And uh, I'm a helicopter pilot. One day we were flying a helicopter up, up in the mountains. She was looking at elk and stuff, and she wanted to go over and look at this one area of the ranch. And I forgot all about the kennel. And so we flew over there, and she said, what is that structure? And I started turning the helicopter toward the house, and she said, oh, no, fly back around. <laughs> and she looked at it, and she says, that looks like a hotel. I said, well, you're kind of right. It's a kennel for dogs. And she looked at me, and she said, well, can't they bunk together? Does it have to be that big? <laughs> what we do with that is in the summer, our, our my dog guy, Brings all of our dogs from South Texas up to Montana, and we train all summer long in in, in Montana. 
and and hunt there the first couple of months of their season. I'll quote T. Boone Pickens, who said that he didn't realize he was rich until he found out he was feeding 45 bird dogs on his place up on Lake Semester Ranch. So, sounds like some pretty common threads there made between you and Mr. Pickens. Um, let's talk a little bit about the management practices there on the Los Angeles. I had the chance to visit with you on that property about three years ago, and I was intrigued by the, I won't call it brush sculpting as much as it was disking for soil disturbance, but y'all had some very intricate patterns that uh, were intriguing as you flew me around with the helicopter to take a look at those. And then I know you had a fair number of center pivots on that property. So have you been able to use those center pivots relative to quail? Well, uh, Garrett, my youngest son, is a is about 90% naturalist and uh, loves uh grasses and knows more about them than most uh, guys who study that their life. And uh, so he he was integral in, in all the grasses we planted when we root plowed and sculpted the area. And he came up about two or, two or three years ago and said, you know, uh, we're just too dependent on rain. Let's, uh, let's take some of these pivots that are right by our quail country and convert them into quail grasses and cover. <laughs> And, that, and that, that way we'll have rain all the time. And so we'll always have some cover and some feed. And so that's what we've done. We've taken about about five of the of the bigger pivots that are close to our quail country. And, and uh, we, we plant, plant seed grasses and cover grasses in there. And um, it's really uh, helped in bad years. And like even this year, uh, we had a bad year last, I guess, year before last. Now, where we didn't have that many, but we kept we kept our brood stock because we kept the the pivots going and kept the quail grasses in there, and so uh, it, it allowed us to keep those. And so it's a lot easier to uh, to replenish this year because we we had a brood stock to replenish from. And this year we had good rains, and so although the pivots we we did the pivots again, we didn't need them as much as we did the year before. But they have uh, they they've really worked out well for us. And as you noted, uh, Zavala County is really not recognized, certainly like Jim Hogg County or uh, Brooks County down there at Heavenville and Fal Furious. But when I visited with you, I sensed that that property there in Zavala County was kind of a the northernmost part of what you could call South Texas quail hunting because. You were already putting up some good numbers, and it sounds like you've continued to do that over the last three years, too. So congratulations to you on that. Um, let's move back to your East Texas property. because What got you interested in that? Is that is that a, a sentimental value because that's where you kind of grew up and kicked around as a kid? Or, or where does that fall in your uh, priorities? Yeah, that was, that was our original property, and, and it was basically – I was trying to replicate for my kids what I had as, as a as a boy, and uh, it's just big East Texas woods with beautiful creeks and and uh, as time went on, it was it was mostly uh, we had quail when I bought it, but the timber practices took most of them away, and we had deer and we had ducks and squirrels and and we had four wheelers they could ride, and so they they spent their early years. Uh, uh, doing that, and then as I acquired more property, uh, Garrett again asked, "Well, what do you want to do with that?" And I said, "Well, 
I don't really know, son. I mean, I'm, I bought it because it's pretty, and I, we y'all grew up hunting and fishing there. And and uh, I said, I said it's just like a Georgia quail plantation, but it's too thick. And so he said, well, why don't we make it into a Georgia quail plantation in East Texas? And I said, well, if you'll do the work, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'd be great to do that because I love it. And so that's that's what's happened. We've spent the last probably four or five years sculpting that, thinning the timber, uh, planting some grasses, but a lot of native grasses that come up are actually pretty good quail grasses. There used to be quail there long ago before all the timber practices. And so uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, uh, we uh, we hope to, uh, to start transplanting quail to put in there uh, this year, actually. We do have some quail there. Uh, in the last year we saw two coveys which is so, so i guess you build it and they'll come if you have the right stuff so so there there are quail there we don't know they're not many and so we want to supplement it with transporting birds to uh, over the next three years to see if we can't make a go of it as as a as a texas quail plantation well there'll be a lot of people uh anxiously watching what your progress and success there is because I'm not a product of East Texas, but you can imagine how many times I hear the story of back in the day, school was out, I hunted just behind the barn with my 410 and got a limit of quail. So I wish you that kind of success that you can pass on to your grandsons and granddaughters uh, in that respect, too. I was reading about you, son, in the the Land Report, which is a pretty high-dollar magazine, and congratulations, you were the feature one year, one year, I think 2018, and then I I saw a little blurb in there where you were with Garrett's dog, Pony, Uh, and I'm probably going to mispronounce the name, but uh, tell me about an Italian Spinoni. Well, an Italian Spinoni is actually a hunting dog, and they were, they're, they're, They've been around since before 500 BC, and they're a big old dog. And Garrett got it as a hunting dog, and and then never got it trained, and it it's kind of became a pet. This big old dog weighs up right at, right at 100 pounds, and uh, he during the COVID, we were at Montana, and he was going to go fishing for his birthday in Florida, and the first day that Florida season opened up, so. I had Rio, his grandson, my grandson, his son, and uh, Pony. So he gave me instructions about how to take care of Pony. He didn't worry about taking care of Rio, but he gave me don't 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 let Pony out off off a leash because she might get snake bit. Don't let her near the ponds because she can't swim. And uh, so uh, he left, and so Pony was very lonely. So she followed me around everywhere. So I was fishing in one of my ponds there in Montana trout fishing and she would just stand right by me and not, not move and I hooked into a big old trout and started jumping and lo and behold Pony launched herself into the water and uh, went after that trout tried to retrieve it for me now, the first thing I thought is oh no I'm going to have to jump in here and save this 100 pound dog it's not going to be fun but she could swim and she swam great and uh, tried her best to catch that fish and then after that, every time I'd fish, she'd go with me and she'd do the same thing. And, and when I would feed some of the fish near my house, she would jump in and try to catch them. Uh, Eric O'Keefe, the land uh, 
report uh, owner called me one day. So what are you doing? I said, I'm watching a dog who's not supposed to be able to swim, try to re- retrieve fish for me. And he just laughed and I took a video of it, sent it to him. He said, Hey, I've got a photographer that lives on the other side of your ranch. Could I bring her over? And so that's how that story got in the land report. Uh, Pony the fish dog. And uh, what I didn't say is uh, I didn't always keep her on a leash. And before long, we had her pointing uh, uh, under portraits and sharp-tailed grouse. And in fact, she uh, uh, she pointed one for me that I shot during hunting season and, and brought back to me the first one she'd ever done. And she was uh, eight years old. Just got to provide the opportunity, and you never know what's going to come up with a dog like that. So, um, I've never heard of that breed of dogs. And I, I'm going to move into a uh, discussion about your retail store there in Houston, Gordian Sons, and talk a little bit about the evolution of that and what, you're, uh, what you hope to accomplish with that and your inventory and some other things. But I'm going to precede that discussion with a quote. I'm, I'm from Oklahoma. And we think a lot about a guy named Will Rogers. And uh, Will Rogers once said that everybody's ignorant just on different subjects. And you're about to start spouting some names of shotguns that I never saw in the Sears and Roebuck catalog. So uh, uh, many of our listeners probably will be aware, will be uh, conversant with some of those names. But you may have to speak slowly for some of those like me that... Uh, the, the furthest in life we ever got was a Remington Model 870 kind of thing. But as we as we talk about, or let me ask you, Russell, what got you interested in starting a uh, a fine line of shotguns and, and rifles there for Houston? What got you motivated to do that? Well, I've always had a love of guns, and I've always liked shotguns and rifles, and I'm not much of a pistol guy. And uh, mainly, I can't shoot one. I'm horrible. And uh, about eight years ago, my wife and I were sitting around talking. Now, I've known my wife. She was, I met her in the third grade when she was eight years old. She was an angel in a play, and I, I stalked her till she finally married me. And uh, so we've been friends long before we were married and, and are still great friends. And about eight years ago, she came to me and said, you know, we've done so much better than we even ever even wildly dreamed. You work a lot. Why don't you do something you really want? I said, I'm going to think about that. And uh, I came back about two months later and says, I'm going to open up the world's best gun store. And she didn't miss a beat. She said, that's not what I meant. And, uh, of course, she just laughed and said, why would you do that? I said, well, you know, and how much would it cost? My wife's a bottom line girl. She's got a master's in mathematics, so she, uh, she, you can't fool her much on when it comes to dollars. And uh, I said, well, I just always loved them, and I just think it, think it'd be fun. I think it'd be good for for us. It'd be good for the city of Houston to have something that no nobody else has. And, I talked to my two boys about it, and they both loved the idea. The only thing Garrett wanted to do, Garrett's a big fisherman, fly fisherman. He said, well, we got to have a fly, a fly fishing department, too. And I said, well, that's fine with me. I love to fly fish. And so we started the process. We found a building, an old building, uh, bought it and renovated it because it had asbestos in it. And while we're doing all this, we're looking to buy inventory and figure out how to do this. And 
the guns you're talking about, we have we have a lot of nice guns. Uh, uh, we have Rigby. They were one of our first uh, guys who who agreed to give us guns, and and, uh, and then uh, Purdy, which is a classic English shotgun that's uh, pretty rarefied air and uh, beautiful guns. They don't shoot any better than any other gun, but they they're they're, they're functional art. And uh, I went to them, and they said, "Well, we we really can't do that. You'd, you'd you'd have to buy our excess inventory for the next couple of years before we could give you give you guns like that." So I said, "Okay," which they didn't know what to say to that. So that's what we did. We 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 bought a, the deal with these Purdy's, Holland Holland's, Rigby's, Bosses. They're all unbelievably fine guns, and they're all handmade. But they take three three years to make. They'll tell you eighteen months to two years, but really they take about three years. It depends on the engraving you get on them. But uh, so I started ordering those. In fact, from the first order, I still don't have them all. Uh, and then that's now been almost five years. But uh, so so we have those guns in the shop. I mean, we have we have Remingtons, we have Seikos, we have Brettas, Rosinis. AYAs. We have all levels of guns. People think it's just a shop for high end, but it's not. We have a lot of starter guns. Yeah, and our biggest seller is probably the Beretta A400. And uh, but we have all these fine guns. And what I did is, I, when I bought this building, it was concrete floors and concrete pillars. And I walked to the four pillars and said, I want to put a vault right here. We'll have guns all around it, and we'll have the best guns inside it. And uh, I need to find a vault door, and so that's what we did, and that's that's kind of the evolution of Gordian Sons. We have, you know, we have fine clothes. I mean, I mean, we have Beretta clothing. You know, we 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 have uh, Sims, uh, we have Filson, we have all all of the nicer hunting Orvis clothing. We have all the nicer hunting clothing. Then we have English clothing too. We have Purdy and Shoffel English outfits. So if you want to. Dale, I, I could dress you up with some little short pants and boots and a little funny hat, and you, you would you would look perfect uh, to, to to go to England to shoot. I had the good fortune of uh, visiting the store there back about two years ago, and and, and I also want to recognize Russell that you're uh, a early recent addition to our board of directors for the Rowan Plants Core Research Foundation, and we thank you for your service there. But we had a board meeting there at Gordian Sons a couple of years ago and you gave us the grand tour and so forth. And to me, one of the most impressive things was the, uh, the door to that gun vault. Uh, I mean, I thought I was looking at Fort Knox. Uh, where did you come up with that? I think there's a pretty interesting story behind uh, how you came about finding the, the door for that vault. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. We looked all over, searched all over, tried all the auction houses looking for it an old authentic bank vault door. And uh, one day I was at, at the airport practicing a, a helicopter maneuver called, called a full down where you cut off the power and, and you got to land because you don't have power. And this it's a little bit of a harrying experience to do it. And then it was hot that day and I had the doors off the helicopter and I was sweating pretty badly. And I just finished, and a friend called me and said, "Hey, could you come meet a lady at Crime Stoppers? Uh, they uh, need some help with fundraising." And uh, and I 
told them you might help them since your dad and uncle were both Houston policemen. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I look like a bum and I smell worse. Uh, I don't know if it'd be a good day to do it. She said, well, he said, well, I, I'm going out of town. You, you mind coming now? So I, I drove over there and it was uh, the old main bank building uh, uh, down down Main Street, pretty far pretty far uh, uh, south of, 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 of downtown. And there was that big door sitting there on the first floor. They they weren't using the first floor because it wasn't it wasn't usable. But I saw that big door, and so I went upstairs to meet the director of uh, of Crime Stoppers, a very nice lady. And she took one look at me and thought I was lost. And my buddy was in the restroom, so she asked if she could help me, and I said I thought I was here to help you. And he came out about that time and. She told me what she needed, and I, I said, well, I'll give it to you on two conditions. Uh, one, you name the, the, the floor where the, all the work's done, where they take in all the calls and everything after my father and my uncle. And she said, well, we can name the building after him. I said, no, nah, they wouldn't want that. They just, they, they were working guys who'd want to, where, where people are doing all the work named after them. And I said, two, I, I need that vault door that you've got down there on the first floor. And she said, "Well, I think the contractor's already already got that in his bid, so I, I'm not sure about that." And of course, my friend, my friend spoke up, said, "Oh, we'll get you the door. Don't worry." And so they did. We refurbished it, uh, it, and it was actually in perfect working order. But we refurbished it a little bit, not too much, because we wanted it to be authentic. And uh, we had to to uh, reinforce the uh, the parking level because our, our our store that you you park on the bottom level and go up. So we had to re- reinforce the parking level to be able to bring that door in there. It weighs 18,000 pounds and was built in 1932. So it, it's definitely a real vault door that you're not going to go through. <laughs> yeah, it uh, really sets the place off and, again, gives you the feeling that you're walking into Fort Knox. Russell, let's let's reminisce a little bit more about the Sears Robot catalog. What was your first shotgun? And then secondly, what shotgun is your favorite today? My first gun was a single shot twenty two, like everybody. And uh, I, I really never had any money to buy a shotgun till I was out working. And I bought a uh, a Remington about 1112 gauge semi-automatic. And... Uh, at that stage of my life, I thought whatever the biggest, most powerful thing you could get would be the best. And I think that's true of most 17, 18-year-old boys. And uh, that's what I spent my first paycheck on, actually, when I, when I, when I, which, so it was about 16, I guess. And uh, that's what I owned first. Uh, it didn't take me long to figure out I didn't like the kick of that, and uh, I really didn't didn't hunt that many ducks and stuff. So... Uh, it didn't take me long to, uh, and, I, and I had an accident and fell off a rig and crushed my hand. I had it in the cast for about a year, and uh, my hand won't turn all the way over, so I can't grip a gun very good. So I started going to the lighter gauges, and a friend of mine that I worked with when I got out working had bought an English 410 Hunter and Sons. Uh, they, they call them garden guns. I don't know if you know what those are, but... The English shot mainly 12 gauges at driven pheasant, but they had these guns they they kept in their kept by their their gardens to shoot the rabbits who were eating all their their produce. But they're a perfect quail gun. They're small and and light, and uh, 
So he he uh, he gave me that gun, and uh, and uh, I shot it. I wound up buying several more after I liked it, and uh, I shot that thing from then until I gave it to my grandson Rio uh, two years ago when he turned ten. The other gun I had was side by side was a Jeffries, and uh, and it was almost an identical gun to the Hunter and Sons, and and I gave that to my grandson Bryant uh, last year when he turned ten. So I was out of guns. And uh, I bought a bunch of 410s, English side-by-sides. The reason I like those, they're really light. Uh, I mean, the, the Hunter and Son weighed 3.7 pounds. And uh, when you quail hunt, at least the way I do it, the quicker you are, the better you do. And uh, so I like those really light guns. And uh, so I, uh, I ordered, I had I had two guns made for me. One of them is a, is a McKay Brown, it's a Scottish gun maker. And the other was a gun I talked Purdy into doing. They had, they had never made a, hunt, a hammer gun in a 410. And uh, I wanted I wanted them to make me one. They wouldn't do it. They needed to do research on it. So I, I agreed to, to, to buy a number of them in order to pay for the research to where I could get one. And I got it for... Uh, last uh, September, I got it for Hungarian partridge season, and this year in quail season. So I've been using both of those guns, and I had them. I had them. I had to take my Hunter and Son gun and and draw draw on a cardboard that gun, that exact gun. And so that's how I had the stocks made because a stock that actually fits me, which is about fourteen and three quarters, fourteen seven eighths, I catch it under my arm because of my hand. So I have to shoot a shorter stock. I shoot probably 14 and five eighths to 14 and a half stock, which is strange because you think a tall guy would want a longer gun, but I just can't do it because of my hand. So I shoot these smaller, smaller stock guns. And, and, uh, those are the two I'm shooting right now. I, uh, I love them. I'm, I, uh, I still probably shoot that first gun I gave Rio better, but, uh, he won't loan it back to me. He loves it. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm shooting. If I was to walk into Gordy and Sons with a lot of money in my fist and said, I want the most expensive shotgun you got in the inventory, Russell, what would that be and how much would it cost me? Well, if you're talking about a single gun, it would be that 410 hammer gun. And we, we've got two that are coming in in March. And, and they would be over three hundred thousand dollars. And if you're talking about a pair, uh, we sold a pair of uh, pheasant guns of Purdy's uh, last year for for five hundred and seventy five thousand dollars. So you can spend what you want. And it's like I said. I mean, a lot of people say well, that's stupid, and it really for hunting it really is. I I just collect them. They're like art to me. There uh, some people like like. Uh, you know Picasso. Well, I like I like hunting hunting actual functional art like a, like an engraved gun like that. It's just beautiful, and I love to shoot it. And so, but but you know we you can you can buy a fifteen hundred dollar Beretta at our store too, and they shoot just as good. I just love those guns. I just think they're beautiful, and and we and I collect them. They're they're art to me. I read about one that you're you're calling the Texas Quail Special, which seems like a pretty unique gun. Tell us about that. Well, about six or seven years ago, 
I was over in England and I was looking at different guns and I, I found a 32 gauge. It was a greener. There was it was a pair, and so I, I bought those guns. And uh, a 32 gauge is between a 410 and a 28. And so it's kind of a cool caliber. Fiocchi actually makes ammunition for it, so you, you can buy it. You, you can't buy it at Academy or Walmart, but you can get it here uh, from Fiocchi. And uh, so I went to my gun guy and said, could, could we make a few of these? Because I think people would like to go on a quail hunt when the people ask them what they got. Because quail hunters, quail hunters like to brag a little bit. And uh, so I said, Listen, can we make a few? And, and Rosini agreed to do that. And so we made some side-by-sides, which is what I shoot, and we made some over-and-unders. And, and uh, we've sold most of those. I think we might have a couple of them left. But uh, everybody that's bought one really likes it because they're, 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 they're not quite as, as big as a 28-gauge, and they they got a lot more shot than a 410. So, so they're kind of a cool gauge and just, just really a specialty gun. And uh, um, I, I like them. I, like I said, I still shoot mainly a 410, but every once in a while I'll take those out and shoot them just because a lot of people never heard of them. And how much shot are we throwing in a 32 gauge? Is that like three quarters an ounce, five eighths? What, what's the load for those? Oh, it's, it's five eighths. Five eighths ounces what they shoot. I, I mean, maybe you could get higher than that, but you don't need it. You can sure kill quail or doves with a five eight ounce load. On four ten, I shoot the two and a half inch shells, not the three inch. Uh, they they get the job done, and uh, that's all you really need. Well, you're you're a great shot. I, I know another guy that I've interviewed, Paul Melton, back a year or so ago. Uh, he shoots a twenty. He's the best shot I've ever seen. But when I tell him I shoot a twenty eight, he said, "If you shoot a twenty eight gauge, you better have a damn good retriever." At the time, I did, but I, I know that would that mentality would have to carry on to a 410 too. And uh, so you must be a quick shot, and uh, obviously a pretty deadly shot at 30 yards to, to be getting back and quail with a 410. Well, thank you, and I, but I also have probably the the best bird dog in the country. He's right here by me right now. I call him Deets the Wonder Dog, and he's an English cocker, but he'll retrieve anything and he'll find anything. So. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, he's my buddy, and, and also he, he, he makes me look good sometimes when I don't look good. Well, you know those English cockers, and that's a whole other story. But they've really, they've really come onto the scene. It seems like in Texas over the last five to ten years, and I enjoy watching people that have one because if they've got one or two of those English cockers on the ground, it's just like fire ants working when you got a, I got a down bird there, impressive dogs to watch. They're, they're, this one is so funny because you get in that tall grass and you hear him. You can't see him. You hear him rooting around like a pig. And before, before you know it, he comes out with that bird. And we we actually like him. We actually raise them at the ranch, and we 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 sell a few uh, every year. We don't we don't raise a lot of litters, but we raise a couple of litters every year. And uh, really like the cocker. It's a it's a great Texas quail dog. But now I was duck hunting Saturday morning. And I took Deeds with me duck hunting. He retrieved. We shot 15 ducks among all of us, and he retrieved every one of them. And uh, all all in a mud mud puddle pond. He uh, didn't bother him a bit. Uh, so they they are really 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 good dogs. He's a a special dog in that he's 
when he's not hunting, he's lazy. He just lay around anywhere, and he loves everybody. He'll go up and wants everybody to pet him. So he's not hyper. And a lot of dogs are hyper, and he just he, he's definitely not that. But I look forward to seeing Deet someday. It sounds like a, a great dog to have a field. I'd be interested in watching. Russell, over your lifetime of hunting quail or Hungarian partridge or whatever birds we're talking about, well, if I ask you to, to describe what your favorite hunt or your favorite point was, would that conjure up a, a um, particular incident? It, it would. Uh, I guess my favorite hunt is when my grandfather, my grandson shot that first quail. Watching him do that and watching him do exactly what I told him to do, I was standing, I was actually kneeling right behind him to watch him do that and how excited he was. Uh, it doesn't get better than that. My, my favorite quail hunt that I've ever been on was again down in South Texas. It was that year, like I said, I can't remember, it was 2016 or 17 when we had all those quail. I was hunting with a, 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 a one of my best friends who's a heart surgeon, and we had we had shot, we'd had covey after covey of quail, and we were just about finished, and we got to the end of this uh, a deal I call Quail Valley, and there's a big mott, and, and both dogs were pointing on opposite ends of the mott. And we go into it and send the cockers in there. And quail came out for 10 minutes. There must have been 300 of them in there. And I was shooting and reloading, shooting and reloading. And my doctor friend kept trying to aim at one. When it was all over, he hadn't, he hadn't killed a single bird. And he's going to be mad I said this. And I think I had six or eight. But it, it was amazing to watch. I guess they had, what had happened is they'd all congregated down there in that last mock. And they just, it must have been four or five coveys in there, and they just kept coming out. Well, that sounds like a Chinese fireworks, one of those fountains, whatever. And uh, our buddy Joe Crafton and Rick Snaps, I had the opportunity to videotape them one day back in 2016 on our lease out in Howard County. And, and in that particular instance, it must have been, I don't know, maybe 35 birds in that covey. But uh, they just kept coming up two and three at a time until both of them were out of shells kind of thing. It was one of the more memorable points of my quail hunting career. Russell, what have we what have we missed? Either about uh, your your experiences, uh, your taste for fine shotguns, your Gordian sons, the, the shop. What are we missing that our readers ought to know about Russell Gordy? No, I don't know anything. I mean, I'm a family man. I've always been low-key until I actually opened up that gun store and people started hearing who I was. But I, I love my family. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I love to have them in the outdoors. We do a lot of things. We we, we usually have a wounded warrior hunt every year. We had a, a, a first-year hunt this year through Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation where we brought, I think, six hunters. And I don't know, they brought a cord of people down there to help them shoot their first deer, first pig. I love to watch people um, get out and, and uh, go hunting for the first time. I love to introduce it to children. Uh, it, and it doesn't matter if they really kill anything. I just want them to have a love of the outdoors. And uh, and if 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 we can impart that legacy on the youth, we'll 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 have it for a long time. Uh, I guess I only want to say one other thing. I'd, I'd really like to thank my wife of all these years. Uh, she's my partner, my advisor. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about her. The year that we had all the quail, and I I shot a ball and. And she said, how many how many quail did you think you killed this year at the place? I said, I don't know, 800, 900, a lot. 
and she said, so we're down to 25,000 a bird now. And uh, so <laughs> she keeps me pretty humble. She keeps me pretty humble. And, uh, and uh, without a good partner, it's hard to make it in life. And uh, I owe a lot to her. So I'd just like to say that. Well, quail hunting subscribes to what I call garden economics. We could all go down to HEB and, and buy a tomato that uh, is very good and uh, high quality, but we still enjoy raising them ourselves, even though it's not cost effective. So I, I'm of the opinion you don't have to justify your recreation on uh, using traditional um, traditional economics. There are such things as psychological economics, and uh, as the old author uh, from South Carolina um my health is better in November. I just dropped his name, but anyways, he said there is such a thing as mental constipation too, and you got to get out and be able to enjoy the outdoors to where your your indeed your health is better in November. Well, we're birds of a feather in that respect, and I thank you for taking time to uh, speak with us today. Uh, again, thank you for your service to our Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and your philanthropy to Quail Coalition and uh, other worthy uh, veterans-related projects and so forth. And I started off with a story by saying it was a rags to riches going from going from uh, Sears Roebuck catalog to Gordy and Sons. Uh, just a lot of us, I think, can re- maybe not cannot relate to the riches part maybe as well as you have, but uh, we appreciate your humble beginnings and, and your thoughts and your attitudes about hunting in general. And for our listeners, if you have somebody that's an interesting character that you've met, like Russell Gordy, that you think other people would be interested in uh, in listening to and getting their expertise, please let me know, uh, drollins at quailresearch.org, and we'll see if we can get that individual lined up for a podcast in the future. So, again, thank you for taking time with us uh, today, Russell. Gary, with that, I'm going to turn it back to you in the studio, and I'll look forward to visiting with you all again next month. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Russell Gordy, for your outstanding contributions as a director of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and for the sponsorship of Gordy and Sons of this podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us this month. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.